Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to do something today. It's a little bit audacious. We're going to be doing an overview of three uh, of the greatest passages, I think, in the book of Romans as it concerns Israel. And while you're turning there, I want to ask, uh, how many of you have seen either the, the film adaptation or the musical Fiddler on the Roof? Anyone seen that? Okay. Well, in Fiddler on the Roof, we have Tevya, the dairyman, the main character. And Tevya uh, is, lives in poverty. And one day he receives word from the local butcher, who's very prosperous, that he, that butcher wants to marry Tevya's eldest daughter. And this is good news for Tevya. She wants to marry, uh, or he wants to marry his daughter. He's a nice, respected member of the little shtetl, the little Jewish community there in uh, Eastern Europe. He's, he's wealthy. It doesn't hurt for his daughter, but definitely it, it, it also benefits the family uh, as a whole. And after leaving, uh, a little bit inebriated, the butcher shop, talking with the butcher and, and hearing this good news, he gets some bad news. He encounters the local constable, a Gentile man, who says, Tevya, I I just need to warn you, um, there's going to be a little trouble coming to the Jewish community. Now, when when a a Russian constable tells a Jewish man there's going to be a little trouble, this is not uh, just a a little trifling thing. This is what is called a pogrom, historically. These These were attacks on the Jewish community by the government. They happened all throughout Eastern Europe. And so after the the constable leaves and and Tevya has just been sobered uh, with this news, literally, he's he's walking away and he does one of his famous Tevya prayers. He he looks up to God and he says, Dear God, did you have to give me news like that today of all days? I know, I know, we're the chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? You know, that's the sentiment many of my Jewish friends share. Uh, they're, they're, they're glad to be Jewish. They, they love the holidays. They, they understand that they have been given the word of God. But if you have, whenever I mention, you know, you're a blessed people. You're the chosen people. They kind of, no, 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 no. Let's not talk about that. We're not, we don't want to be singled out. Because for, historically, for the Jewish people, being chosen, in their view, means being chosen for persecution. It makes them stand out. It makes them easy prey for anti-Semites in the world. And you can't blame them. Uh, consider uh, in Tampa, I think we have a picture of this. In Tampa, just recently, uh, there were people, a, a gathering of, of people waving Nazi flags and carrying anti-Semitic signs outside the Tampa Convention Center calling on the Nazification of that area and, and Nazi policies against the Jewish people. In, at the University of Southern California, in just this past month, uh, a Jewish girl was forced to resign from student government because of her Jewish identity and her support of Israel. And this is the history of the Jewish people. This is modern, but it's an ancient hatred. But Alfred Edersheim, Alfred Edersheim was a, a believer in the Lord Jesus, said he was a Jewish man, wrote some phenomenal books, and he said in one of them, none loved Israel, none loved the Jewish people 
so intensely, even unto death, as Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot help but opening your Bible and from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of Revelation, what people and ethnically is God dealing with? Israel, isn't he? And so today we're going to really, we're going to confront the lie that the Jewish people are a curse. That's what the world is telling them. We're going to look at the scriptures and see what does God say about Israel. And when I say Israel, I mean the Jewish people, the, the Jewish people around the world. What does God say about them, past, present, and future? Well, you've turned to Romans 9, I hope, by now. And uh, I just want to introduce this by saying, I think Romans is the, one of the greatest books in the scriptures. If I was stranded on a desert island, give me the book of Romans. Uh, it is essentially the scripture put into Reader's Digest form, isn't it? And, and Paul, in Romans 8, he's, he's kind of reached this climax in his, his message, or so it seems. And he, he's talked about, we're all guilty, we all are under the curse, we all have a penalty coming. And then he, he introduces, but, but thanks be to God... In Christ Jesus, we are not under that condemnation anymore. And at the end of Romans 8, he, he kind of swells in verse 37. He says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he gives this famous statement. I love this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the church says, amen, amen right? But then Paul shifts gears on us. He goes to Romans 9, verse 1, and look at what he says. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. How does the Apostle Paul, who just spent eight chapters telling us about our condemnation, but now our sanctification and our salvation in the Messiah, now say, but you know what? There's something that's dampening my mood here. What is it? that does this. Well, look at verse 3. Here's the reason. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Messiah, from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul says what is burdening his heart is that his own people, the Jewish people, by and large, have not accepted the message of the Messiah and the salvation found in him. Imagine, and, and some of you this isn't very hard to do, imagine your own families. Think of people in your own families and you say, you know, I'm, I'm a joyful person, I, I know the Lord, but you know what really burdens me? You know what really saddens me? My family members who are not saved. Do you know what that feels like? And Paul is saying that of the entire nation, of his people. That, this burdens me. My people are not saved. And, and, and his heart is such that he says, if it were possible, I would be accursed 
for their sake. I would go to hell and take the judgment of God if it meant the salvation of the nation. Do you have a heart like that for people? I struggle with that. I don't think I'm where Paul is. But he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to explain that Israel, they're not only his people, Israel is a privileged people. Look at verses 4 and 5. He's going to describe who is he talking about when he says, my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Messiah came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He lists here some of Israel's privileges. Uh, And I think one of the best ways to illustrate this is to look at the covenants. We go to the slide that shows the covenants. There are five covenants that God makes with the nation of Israel in the Scriptures. The first is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant uh, is first uh, given in Genesis 12. And if you remember in Genesis 12, this comes right after the Tower of Babel, right? Where the nations, even after the flood, they're apostate. They're going to do their own thing. They're going to worship themselves, lift lift their own name up. And God, who has foreordained that he is going to accomplish his purposes, remember back in Genesis 3, by the way, he told Eve that there was going to come someone from her, the seed or the, the head crusher, who is going to come and he, even though his heel will be bruised by Satan, he will crush the serpent's head. Do you remember that? And so throughout Scripture, by the, we, we see God narrowing down the identity of this person. So when we come to Genesis 12, God says to a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeas, Chaldees, he's a pagan, he, he's an idol worshiper, uh, we learn in the book of Joshua. But he picks this man, he says, I'm going to take you out of there, I'm going to put you in the land of Israel, I'm going to make you a great nation, you're going to be a blessing to the families of the earth. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Galatians uh, 3.8, there Paul tells us that the ultimate fulfillment of that is a person. And who is the person who is going to come from Israel, from the Jewish people, and bless the people of Bethel Church? Who is it? Jesus, the Messiah. The ultimate Jewish man. Well, then we have the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. God promises to the nation, to Abram, and there's no strings attached. The Mosaic covenant, there's some stipulations. God meets with Israel after their exodus out of Egypt itself. He meets with them at Sinai, and he gives them what? He gives them the law, or as the Jewish people say, the Torah. Okay, He gives them the Torah, and he doesn't just say, go enjoy it, Enjoy your lives, right? The law has stipulations. He's giving this to the nation to keep them holy, to keep them separate. Why would he want to keep them separate? Well, because they are essentially nationally a missions nation. The nations of the world are to look to Israel and see that is what it means to be in right relationship with the one true God. 
And he ke- gives them these laws to keep them separate, not to make them right with God, but to keep them sanctified for God. And he gives them these stipulations and he says, now, if you keep this law, there's going to be great blessing for you nationally. Your harvest is going to be wonderful. You're going to have large, prosperous families. It's going to be uh, as close as paradise can be this side of Eden. However, if you disobey this, this covenant, it is not going to be good for your nation. I'm going to scatter you to the four corners of the globe. Did Israel keep that covenant? No. We'll see that in just a moment. There's in the land covenant. God God tells Israel, I'm going to give you this land. I give you the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. As the Jewish people say, Eretz Yisrael. It's like the the soil, the dirt of Israel. I'm going to give it to you. But if you want to enjoy it, you need to obey the law. Because I I can take you out of the land just as easily as I put you in. One way to look at this, uh, when I was 17, my parents got a new car for my mom, and I got her 1997 Sunfire. You know, you can picture it. It's it's green with shades of rust, right? And my my parents said, this is your car. You have the responsibility. You put the gas in it. you, You pay for the repairs. You do everything. However, my parents didn't have very many rules, but they had, my dad always had one rule. Don't be stupid. And if I was stupid, guess who was going to have his keys taken away? Me. It was my car, right? But my parents reserved the right to take the, the enjoyment out of that car really quick. It's the same with the land where God says, it's yours. I'm giving it to you, Israel. But I can take you out and not allow you to enjoy it. However, he says at the very end of that covenant in Deuteronomy 30, there's coming a day when I will return you to the land following national repentance. Well, then there's also the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 where he says that he is going to have a kingdom that will never end. How is that possible? Well, it's possible if you have an eternal king to sit on the throne, isn't it? And who is that Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? Good. And then there's the New Covenant. The New Covenant we find in a few places in the Old Testament and certainly in the New, but one of those places is Jeremiah 31. And there God promises Israel that there is coming a day when even though they broke the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, the law, even though they broke that, he was going to make a new covenant with them. And this covenant would be inscribed upon their hearts. Now this covenant can only be uh, affected by faith but it requires the blood of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, has that blood been shed? Yes, you and I are, are beneficiaries of that blood. Does Israel enjoy the new covenant today? Not yet. That day is coming, and we're, we'll get to that. So these are some of the blessings, the privileges that this nation has. God did not make covenants with Egypt. He didn't make covenants with the United States or with Canada or wherever. He made it with one nation, with the nation of Israel. They are privileged. But Paul makes the the next point. We're going to go into Romans 10 now, if you would, just turning to Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. Not only is Israel a privileged people, right now Israel is a lost people. Israel is a lost people. Paul writes, 
here in, in chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, that's you, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Let's stop right there. This is probably you and me before we came to faith, true faith in Jesus, isn't it? I believe it was Blaise Pascal who said, essentially, we have a, a vacuum, we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we will fill it with everything under the sun except for God, right? It is, but it's designed for God. We, we too, uh, often build religions. We're, we're zealous for God or gods, depending on the religion, but it's not according to knowledge. How did you come to know the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How did you come to know him? Well, I guarantee whatever your testimony, whatever your story, this was involved, wasn't it? Because God reveals himself through his word. You came to know the Messiah through the knowledge of God. The problem with the nation, Paul says, is that they are zealous, but it's not according to the knowledge of God. It's not according to Scripture. In fact, if you go to most synagogues today, uh, your, your kids in, in maybe middle school or even elementary school, Sunday school classes, almost undoubtedly know more about the Scriptures than many of the, the elderly Jewish people, the, the people who have grown up in the Jewish community. Because, not because they're ignorant people, they're some of the most brilliant people the world's known, but why? Because they're not centered around the Word of God. Well, he says also, for, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. That is works-based Religion, isn't it? I'm going to seek to establish my own righteousness. I'm very good at this in my heart. I'm very good about establishing my own righteousness. What's the problem? God's righteousness is, is separate from me and it, it calls me out. And it's the same with Israel. They, they sought to establish their own righteousness and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Question, who is the righteousness of God? Again, Jesus, right? And we see that in verse 4. For Christ, or for Messiah, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does the law accomplish? Well, one of the things the law accomplishes is it shows us how sinful we are. It shows sin for what it is. And uh, you probably have heard the analogy, but it's like going to an amusement park as a kid and you're, you want to get on uh, this roller coaster and you go up to the sign that says you must be this tall and you are this tall, right? It, 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 is the sign bad? Of course not. But it's demonstrating how far you, ha you have to go. That you're, you are, you're not meeting that mark. But for the one who puts their trust in the Messiah... He has already met the mark for us, hasn't he? He fulfilled the law. He is perfect. And so we disabuse ourselves of any idea of being able to, to come to God and to establish our own righteousness. And we say, he's my righteousness. So Paul says, they're ignorant, or ignorant of God's righteousness. They seek to establish their own righteousness. And so what is their need? 
It is the righteousness of God in Messiah. It is the gospel. Well, Paul spends Romans 11. We'll go to Romans 11 now. He spends Romans 11 dealing with the question of Israel's future. He mourns for Israel. He mourns for the Jewish people. In fact, at the end of Romans 9, he gets into this this, uh, treatise on how the Jewish people, just because they're descendants of Abraham, does not mean they're a saved people, right? They They are a covenant people. They are a chosen people for his purposes, and yet they have fallen. They're a privileged people, but they are a lost people, and yet Paul says in Romans 11, they are a people with a future. Look at Romans 11 verse 1. I say then, Has God cast away his people? Why does he say this? Well, remember, these three chapters come on the heels of Romans 8, where he's just said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if you're reading this and you're following Paul's argument, you might be saying, objection, what about Israel? Because Israel rejected the Messiah. Israel had all the privileges and said, we don't want the Messiah that you have sent. Surely, that would separate you from the love of God. And what, is Paul, what, what does Paul say here? Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Some of your translations, it says, God forbid. It's a strong uh, denunciation of this idea that, that God has cast away his people. And, and what is his proof of this? He, sa- he, he says, exhibit A. He points to himself. Look at this in Romans, 1, or Romans 11. 1. For I also am an Israelite. He says, because I'm Jewish. I'm of the tribe or of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to say, and he references the Old Testament scriptures. He says, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Was Elijah Jewish or Gentile? Jewish, right? So he speaks of this Jewish man. He says, of what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, against his own people, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah is part of what is always, throughout the scriptures, throughout the, the theology of the Jewish people, throughout their story, there is a remnant, okay? Paul says, not all Israel is of Israel, right? Not all Jewish people are, are, are true descendants of Abraham in the spiritual sense. And he says here, Elijah felt the same way. Elijah looked at his own life. He said, look, I know I'm an Israelite and I'm seeking the Lord, but I'm the only one in the whole nation. Nobody else is following the Lord. Incidentally, do you ever feel that way in our own culture? And what does Paul say? Or what God says in verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, Elijah, you feel alone. You're not the only Jewish man in Israel who is worshiping me. I've got 7,000 others. What's Paul's point? He's saying, look, God always has a remnant, even when it looks hopeless, even when it looks like the whole nation has rejected the Messiah, he still has a future for them. There are still people coming to faith. 
And so verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We often talk about God's program for Israel. That sounds kind of technical. It's, it's what's God's plan for the Jewish people. Well, if they're his chosen people, he has a plan for them, right? When you became a believer, do you feel that the Lord has a plan for you? Yeah. He spells it out in the scripture what his plan for you is. It's sanctification. It's ultimately glorification. It's being formed in the image of his son. Well, for the nation of Israel, God's program we say is temporarily paused. I've enjoyed listening to Pastor Ken's message series on Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. And if you look at the book of Daniel, where is Daniel writing from? Which, which Babylon. continent? Babylon, right? Should a, should a nice Jewish boy be in Babylon? No, he's supposed to be in Israel. Why are they out of Israel? Because they disobeyed the covenant. God took them exactly as he said, out of of the land. He put them into, uh, under another regime where they are oppressed. How could this be part of, of God's program? Well, it is. It's part of his chastening plan for Israel. And in Romans 9, I don't want to steal your thunder, Ken, but in Romans 9, or excuse me, Daniel 9, uh, God gives Daniel a prophecy called the, the prophecy of the 77s or, or 70 weeks. Weeks gets confusing. It means a, a measurement of seven or heptads. And he says that there are 77s for Israel. And those 77s stop at, 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 at 69, just shy of 70. Why? What happened? Well, it says in Daniel 9 that the Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be killed for his own people. When did that happen? It was the crucifixion of the Messiah, Jesus. And so if you can imagine, as, as one pastor friend often says, if you can imagine that Israel is God's timepiece, it's, it's his clock for all of history, and when the Messiah was crucified, there is a, there is a spike stopping that hand from going any further. The, the clock is, has, is not ticking, and it hasn't ticked for the last nearly 2,000 years. However, I believe that following the rapture of the church where God takes his bride home, who does he turn back to? He turns back to Israel. You read about this in Matthew 24 and throughout the remainder of Matthew. Messiah uh, will, will eventually will come. And when he comes, Israel will be saved. What is Israel's future? Well, first, it'll be persecution. In the last days, both Daniel 9, Matthew 24, other passages in the scriptures talk about a, a time known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the, the tribulation, the great tribulation. It's a time not only where God judges the inhabitants of the earth. I don't believe that's us. I believe God doesn't beat up on his bride. He takes us home. But he's, he's, the, the globe is going to experience the wrath of God in judgment. And at the same time, God is using that to chasten his people Israel. And if you read the book of Revelation, if you read Matthew, you see that there's coming a day when the nation of Israel is going to, after this chastening, be saved. Nationally, the nation will be saved. Look at, uh, just to humor me, if you would look at Romans 11, uh, 25, 
through 28. I, I put the wrong scripture passage on the screen. Romans 11, 25 through 28. Paul says to this church at Rome, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of of the Gentiles has come in. You know, there's a, there's a theology uh, that is, it's, it's big in the mainline denominations historically, but it's, it's seeped into the evangelical world as well. It's called supersessionism or replacement theology. And at the end of the day, what it says is, God, because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, God has rejected them and he's replaced them with this motley crew, the church. Paul, I believe, counters that completely in the book of Romans 11, when he does here, because he's saying this blindness or hardening has not happened to Israel permanently. How long is it going to last? Well, it says that it's blindness in part, so it's not all of Israel. Remember, there's always a remnant of the Jewish people who are trusting the Messiah. And it's going to happen to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's, a, there's an expiration date on Israel's blindness. And you know who he's waiting on? The Gentiles. How'd you like to be the last Gentile saved? And God's like, yep, you're the one. Church age is over. Now I'm going to turn back to Israel and start dealing with them. It's going to happen. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer, or the Messiah, will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And you can almost anticipate, as a, as a Gentile believer reading this, thinking, but, but Paul, they've, they've, the Jewish communities, they've, they've stoned us, they've been persecutors of the church, they've rejected the Messiah. Look what he says in verse 28. He's basically saying, I know, I know, concerning the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What's God saying? He's saying, I know, but I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made promises in Jeremiah of a new covenant that would come to this nation. And here's, here's the wonderful thing about the Lord. What he starts, he finishes. And I don't know about you, but personally, I'm thankful for that. I'm glad that the good work he's begun in me, he's not going to just allow to crumble when I sin because he would have thrown me away a long time ago. And it's the same with the nation of Israel. Right now, Concerning the gospel, they're enemies. Enemies, why? Enemies for your sake. Well, we'll close with this. The church, that's us in this, this age. The church is a people with a mission. And we can progress with the slides. Uh, we're a people with a mission, and we find this in Romans 11, beginning in verse 11. What is the, the church's relationship to Israel? Well, there, there's three primary points here. First of all, in regards to the, the church's relationship to Israel, we are not Israel. We are the church. Israel began with whom? With a man named Abraham, right? Back in Genesis. Uh, when did the church begin? In Acts, the day of Pentecost. Israel is an ethnic nation. They're the descendants of 12 tribes. We are 
The church is a, a, a group of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, everywhere you can imagine. And throughout his epistles, Paul makes clear that there is a distinction between the church and Israel. But secondly, the church is benefiting from Israel's fall. Look at verse 12. We're, we're, we're kind of getting, well, let me, no, let me begin with 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In, Israel, in, in other words, is Israel down and out? When they, they stumbled over the chief cornerstone, the Messiah, they stumbled over him, didn't they? But did they stumble so as to be completely discounted? God has no future for them. Again, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? You know, I'm not a, I'm not a Greek scholar, but my understanding is that in this, this passage, it's the idea of a ship that has been overturned, and the treasures of the ship have gone all, all, all over the ocean floor. And then there's these scavengers who come in, and they, they pick up what treasure they can. And he's saying, if, if the shipwreck for Israel meant benefit for you, guess what's going to happen? When that ship is righted in God's plan, as it were, it's going to mean even greater blessing for the nation of Israel. Amen? When Israel rejected their Messiah, did the gospel just stop? God said, okay, if they're not going to accept it, we're done here. No. Who did it go to? To the nations, to the goyim, the Gentiles. You are saved because the gospel message was rejected by the Jewish people and it went to you. In fact, when I share the, the gospel with many of my Jewish friends I, and they kind of say, well, this is just hard for me because that's such a Gentile message. I say, no, 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 no. You should be telling me this. I'm the Gentile, right? You should be teaching me this. So we are benefiting from Israel's fall. And then third, we are tasked with making Israel jealous. Now, if you look at church history, the church gets a big F on this. Historically, the church, and I say that broadly, Christendom, has been very unkind to the Jewish people. Martin Luther, for all the, the wonderful things he, he did and for the wonderful things that came out of the Reformation, he was, a, towards the end of his life, a, a, a terrible anti-Semite, wrote, wrote horrible things about the Jewish people. And another German, about, about 350 years later, comes along and he takes those writings and he quotes them to the German people again and it helps to pave the way to unparalleled persecution of the Jewish people. Who was that German? Adolf Hitler. You can read volumes on how the, the church has treated Israel. That's not what we're talking about when we say that the church is to make Israel jealous. Go back to verse 11 there. Paul says that they haven't fallen, certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to us. God wants us to be saved, but part of his purpose additionally in saving Gentiles and saving the nations is so that the Jewish people would be jealous. You know, I have two kids. I have a three-year-old and a, a one-year-old, and it's really interesting to watch them. My son, Emery, he's one, he will be toddling along and he'll see one of my daughter's toys that he, he, he picks it up. Now, my daughter, 
It's like she can smell this from a mile away. Because all of a sudden, she comes in and she sees M playing with this toy she hasn't thought about for three months. And all of a sudden, there is no toy on God's green earth that she wants more than the one Emery has. You've probably seen that. It's provoking her to jealousy to see Emery playing with her toy. You know, it's essentially the same with us. As the church, we are to be enjoying the Lord. We are to be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Our lives, our testimonies are to be on vibrant display to the world and particularly to Israel, not to gloat, but to say, look at what you're missing. You can have this too. It is to be a witness. Is your life making other people jealous for your walk with the Lord? People look at you and look at how you handle not only the joys in your life, but the trials, and they say, you know what? That doesn't make sense. There's something weird about this guy. There's something weird about this lady, but there is no denying there's something different. They handle things differently. They live their lives differently. Is it making people jealous? We'll end with this. If we learn the lessons of Romans 9, 10, and 11... And we leave here saying, you know what? I know God has a plan for Israel now. I, I get that. That's good. But if we miss what it tells us about God, then we have missed the entire point about the character of God. What does this teach us about Him? Well, first of all, it tells us God is faithful even when we are not. Look at Israel. Not a faithful nation. And yet God is going to fulfill His promises to them. God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering with this nation. He's long-suffering with, with us, the church. God does not replace or, or give up on His promises that He's made. He is true to His Word. And His Word is true even to the last jot and tittle. Many of my Jewish friends are atheists or agnostics, and they say, how can you believe in a God who would allow six million of our people to perish in the Holocaust? That's a big question. And my answer usually is, how can you not believe in a God who has sustained your people and in spite of the persecution and the attempts to annihilate your people, you are still here? The greatest evidence, I believe, for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Jewish people. They are a testimony. And so we can trust God. We can trust His Word. And so the church must have a heart for the whole world, just as God does. But the church must also have a special burden for Israel, for, for what God calls the apple of His eye. He will keep every promise. So the question is, as believers, can we say with Paul, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God as it concerns Israel is their salvation. I hope it is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word and I thank you for your people Israel. They are a lesson to us of your character, of your long-suffering and your faithfulness and we can look at that and, and see how you treat us as believers. 
I thank you for Bethel Church and for their heart for ministry to the Jewish community, for their heart for the gospel, and their heart ultimately for Jesus. And I ask your blessing on them, Lord. I pray that we would be prepared and, and ready to share the gospel with all those we come into contact with, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we'll glorify you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.